What's up, coaches? Welcome to Keep Your Pads Down, the podcast for defensive line coaches, or if you're not a D-line coach, the part of you that wishes you were. Anyway, thank you for checking us out today on what is episode number 79 of our podcast here. We are rolling through the 2020 season with new episodes for you every Monday. So if you're looking to gain an edge this season, if you need some new drills or cues to spice up your indie periods, or you just want to hear from some great coaches, then you have come to the right place. And if you want to, you can go back and check out any of our previous 78 episodes where we've talked with high school coaches from big programs, small programs, college coaches from some big-time schools around the country, and college coaches from smaller programs. Uh, earlier this spring and summer, we talked with uh, Coach Bill Curry, a longtime head coach in both the ACC and SEC, Tim Kite, founder of Focus 3 and, and culture coach for the Ohio State football program, along with a lot of other just outstanding coaches. So if you're a football coach or a person in a position of leadership, chances are we have something for you. So take us along with you all season long and tell your friends all about us as well. Now we have another great episode lined up for you today where we are talking with Coach Brian Coughlin, the defensive line coach at Laney College in Oakland, California. Yeah, that's the same Laney College featured on the latest season, season five of the hit series, Last Chance You, which of course can be seen on Netflix. So I'm really excited to get to talk with Coach Coughlin today and for you to hear his perspective on you know, what it's like coaching through a reality TV show that's, that's being filmed you know, about your program. You have a camera crew following you around day in, day out. Uh, all the time, you have to be mindful of things you say and what you do. And so what, you know, what was that like? Uh, and of course, you have the pressures of winning and repeating as uh, state champions as those guys did the previous year, 2018. So we talk about all of that. And of course, we get into some D-line stuff as well in the second half of our conversation. So I'm glad uh, that, that Coach Coughlin could join us today. I know that you enjoy what he has to say to us today. Now, Coach Coughlin was born and raised in Vallejo, California, where he attended Hogan High School before going on to play offensive line at Solano Community College, where he was an all-conference center. Coach then transferred to Sonoma State University, a Division II school in Rohnert Park, California, to finish out his playing career. Coach Coughlin began his coaching career coaching the O and D-line at Hogan High School, his alma mater. After four years there as an assistant, he became the head coach at Hogan for six years before taking a position coaching defensive line at his other alma mater in Solano Community College. Coach was at Solano for seven years until the program was canceled. While he was there, they were conference champions for three years in a row were elected to move up a division at the time the program was canceled. Coach Coughlin then accepted a position coaching defensive line at Laney College, where he's been coaching for nine seasons. During that time, Laney College has won five conference championships, as well as in Northern California and the California State Championship in 2018. As I've already mentioned, the 2019 season for Laney College is a subject of season five of Last Chance U, which is available now on Netflix. Today, Coach Coughlin and I talk about what it was like being a part of a successful TV series and coaching through all of that, and then we get into the Eagles' defensive line philosophy of creating knockback and winning early downs. So all of that and a whole lot more on episode number 79 of KYPD. Well, I'm really excited to be talking today to Laney College defensive line coach Brian Coughlin. Coach Coughlin, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks, Ty. I really appreciate you having me out. It's an awesome opportunity to talk football, and I'm really looking forward. Yeah, we are too. And, and I, I think we've all, I think it's safe to say we've all had a really wild and weird 2020, but I have to imagine that this past calendar year for you has been one that, that you'll never forgive. And, and before we talk about that, let's back up and just have you fill us in on your background a little bit. Um, I'm born and raised in Vallejo, California, which is in the Bay Area, probably about 40 minutes drive from Oakland. We're, we're about halfway between Sacramento and Oakland, the capital. And I played football at Hogan High School in Vallejo and then went on and played community college football at Solano. And then I was lucky enough to go to Sonoma State to play a little D2 ball before I hung them up. Playing community college football was, was I don't want to say the height of my career, but by the time when I played at Sonoma State, we, it was a, a, a pretty high-powered Division II football program. A lot of guys came out of that. I, I played with Larry Allen. At, and there were a lot of coaches there. Some of them now are in the NFL and head coaches at big-time schools. And I, and I think that experience is what drove me into coaching the most. Because, you know, after uh, one year after I got done playing in college, I started coaching at Hogan again because my head coach, Tony Kale, really made a huge impact on me. And I wanted to go back and work with young men and teach them how to play some good, high-quality football and be around some coaches that could teach me about the game and help me on the journey that I was taking with teaching and coaching. Well, talk about where all you've coached. I know you've been a head coach before on the high school level, and, and again, uh, I've been a long-time JUCO coach, so just talk about all the places you've coached uh, up to this point. It, it's pretty much just been three stops. So when I got done, playing in college, I was an assistant coach at Hogan for four years. And then my head coach went back who uh Tony Kale had coached at Nevada Reno, had had taken a couple D one stops, been California high school coach of the year. And that the one of the main reasons I went back is because I wanted to work with him. And then four years in he hung it up at the high school and went back to Santa Rosa Community College. And I had the opportunity to take over the program where I coached there for six years. I, I, we didn't have a great run record-wise, but I really liked what I was doing. After my son was born, I started kind of looking at what was going on and my priorities, and we had, we had had a lot of coaching changes, and I, I was just I was ready for a change. So I fired myself, and I was kind of in limbo, figuring out what was going on. And I got a call from Floyd Burnsett, who was the head coach at Solano at the time. I thought it was going to be a call about people for uh, recruiting. And I told the guy that took over, I said, hey, if it's about recruiting, you can handle that. And I said, but if it's a job offer, make sure you let me know. Five minutes later, he came back. He's like, well, he wants to talk to you about a job. And I told my wife, you know, we've got our newborn son. Solano is about 10 minutes away from my house. So it was kind of a dream situation. I told her, hey, I'll be back in a minute. I'm not making any promises. I, I came back with a jacket, a polo, a couple t-shirts, and a <laughs> pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah. And and I said, hey, babe, we're, you know, we're going in a different direction, which which was awesome because I, I as much as I enjoyed working on the high school level, I just I liked the the change in the level of football, the commitment and and 
the freedoms that were allowed that I wasn't dealing with their problems during the day of high school students. I got to go in and deal with college young men and and shape them with their technique and get on them about their classes and their grades and knowing that I was really helping them get to the next level of their dreams. So talk about some highlights from your coaching career up to this point. Um, I, I got to say one of the, the first highlights was Solano had just come back recently at that time from being, they dropped the program and the program came back and Floyd took it over and first, first year or two, you know, we were competitive, but it was a little rough. And then we started turning it around and winning conference championships. And at that time, community college football in California was three levels. And we were at the bottom level, and we were getting ready to move up to the mid. And then the powers that be decided to cancel the program again. And my good friend, Josh Ramos, who's the defensive coordinator at Laney now, he went on and got a job at Laney. And my I, he put me down as a reference. And Coach Bean called me up one day at work. I was at Bethel High School in Vallejo, where I teach at. And I get a call, and Josh is called to, to be his reference, kind of turned into an impromptu job interview for me. Because I, I had gone around and talked to a few high school coaches, talked to a few college coaches, you know, just to kind of see what my options were. And I really enjoyed working with Josh. I mean, I think. One of the reasons we've had a lot of success at Laney is because we work well together and we've been on the same page for almost 10 years now plus. And I, I just, once Coach Bean gave me the opportunity to come over to Laney, I, I just jumped at the chance. And it was kind of the, the same situation with Laney. Uh, coach Bean had just taken over as head coach and we were competitive, but we weren't where we are as a program now. And we we won... In the last nine years, I want to say we've won the conference four or five times and, and started going back to bowl games, which was an awesome feeling. And then they started the college playoff system here for community colleges, and that, that was our number one goal. And we finally made the playoffs for the first time a couple of years back. We were out in the first round, but it was still good to get there. And the next year, we're, you know, the first the first big thing was winning the Northern California Championship because community college football in the Bay Area is super competitive and, and just Northern California. You know, our main rivals are San Francisco City College and San Mateo. And then there's American River and Butte up north and just a lot of tough football teams. And when we won that Northern California Championship, I, I, I was ecstatic because San Mateo beat us during the regular season and then we got them in the playoffs and to do that was awesome. And then we make it to the, the state championship game against Ventura College. And it was up, the game was at Sacramento City, so which is right in our backyard. And to be able to win that there was the most awesome feeling I've ever had as a football coach. We, when we won the game, everybody stormed the field. And I was running with the Bulls, not knowing what I was doing. But I, I was just on cloud nine and ecstatic. Well, let's talk about uh, you know the, your time there at Laney, and and I, I really also just want to talk about college football, uh, JUCO football, and California as a whole because uh, you know I coached in I, I started my coaching career in Mississippi where JUCO ball is really big there. Uh, obviously, that's where the first couple of seasons of of Last Chance you were filmed there at at East Mississippi, 
Uh, we sent a couple players there while I was while I was coaching there, and uh, so you know we would. Uh, I remember as as a as a high school staff, uh, a lot of times on Thursday nights we would go and pick a JUCO game in the area and go and watch it. And so JUCO ball was really big in Mississippi, and then you know watching the season with you guys, it was just completely different from what I think a lot of us, at least in this part of the United States, are used to when it comes to JUCO football and JUCOs just in general. Uh, I think one of the things that really shocked me was, you know, no no dorms, no on-campus student housing, and just some of the other differences there. So just talk about the challenges uh, as a veteran of, of JUCO football in the state of California. Talk about some of the challenges that come with coaching junior college football there in California. You know, you nailed it. There, there are some schools in the area that have dorms, but the fact that there are no scholarships meant that we had to hit the pavement and recruit all the high schools around us super tough. Um, Josh is our recruit coordinator, and he's done a fantastic job of setting us up with assignments and schools to go look at it and numbers of head coaches and players to call. I, I, I mean, they, they don't, it, it's not like some of these other schools where you get all the bounce back from the D1s. I mean, we really had to hit the pavement and find dudes. And, a lot of times they're undersized guys. A lot of times they're they're guys that were overlooked for whatever reason, grades, you know, what have you. And that the biggest thing, the challenge is actually what is the most rewarding thing about all this is, you know, being able to take a guy who's been working his butt off for two, maybe three years sometimes if they shirt, and then seeing them get a scholarship. A lot of times, the Division One schools is just the most rewarding thing ever, and I, I take more pride in that than just taking a guy who already has all the skill and talent that just made a bunch of bonehead decisions, and then now I just got to get him right and threaten him until he gets good. Yeah, I mean, don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. I mean, we we have guys that are coming back from, you know, everything from extreme poverty to sometimes being incarcerated and. I'm a I'm a big believer in second chances, and if you come to work, I got all the time in the world for you. And I'm not saying I never turn those guys down. It, it's just that taking guys that who were undersized at first that bust their butts in the weight room for two three years and work on the technique and soak up the system, and then to see them go thrive at a Division One school and, and even at, at even all levels of football. I mean. Because we, we, get, we get a lot of guys that get Division II scholarships, some guys that get some one double A, and then every year we get at least five, six guys that go Division One to big-time schools. And to see them not only go to these schools, but compete and start and knowing what they came from is just the best feeling ever. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And, and I think, what, you know, again, when, when watching your season, uh, that title, you know, last chance you that I felt like that was more fitting uh, for the guys on your team and in your program. And this isn't meant to be any offense, but, you know, it, without getting into specific storylines that were there, but you had some guys who were really there like this, they were on their last shot. You know, they're living out of their car or they're 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 commuting two hours a day one way to get to school. Uh, I mean, they're going through all these things just to get to school, just to have a chance to play football and maybe get a scholarship. Whereas, you know, I think, again, kind of like what you already talked about, at other JUCOs across the country, you know, you have guys getting scholarships, they're living in 
in these nice dorms. Uh, you know, they have a lot of these same amenities and, and setups as uh, these larger schools. Uh, and, and so maybe the, I don't know, maybe the pressure's not as amped up as it is a place like like your place where there's none of that. It's just football, and the guys who are there are, are the guys who really want to be there. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that California, but especially the Bay Area, is just so expensive to live that you get a lot of people from, from the Oakland area, you know, like Ray, they move out to, they move out an hour, hour and a half away. And there's, I don't know what the traffic's like where you're at, but the traffic around the Bay Area is horrible. I mean, there, I, I live on a good day with no traffic. I live about 40 minutes away from Wayne College. On a bad day, that could take an hour and a half to hour and 45 minutes to get home and bumper to bumper. Yeah. So the, the, the sacrifices that the kids make are tremendous. You know, and then you, you put on the fact that some of them don't have places to live. You know, they, but these kids, they do a really good job of pooling their resources and helping them out. And my, my guys know, because I leave the house at, 7.15 in the morning, and sometimes I won't get home till 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. So I pack, a, I pack plenty of snacks in my backpack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not trying, there's, there's no time or need to go hit a delicious restaurant in, in my day. So I, I pack two, three meals with me to get me through, and all my guys know I, so they, they come, as soon as I get to the meeting, they come sit right next to me, and they're, and they're buddying up, and they're looking at me, they're looking at the bag, they're looking at me, and they're like, Coach, you got snacks? So, you know, whatever. I, I try to share just as much as the next guy. But yeah. so, to watch guys in beating room, if somebody's got a lot of food, they'll share it with their friends. And they, like I said, they pool their resources like nothing else. And just to see them make those sacrifices to live their dreams is amazing. Yeah. Well, d- describe the impact the show you know, had on your program there at Laney. I, I'm sure going from, you know, uh, on an, at least on a national scale, sort of obscurity. I mean, I had never heard of Laney College before I watched the okay. show. Uh, so how how did how has this how has the show affected your staff, your your kids, recruiting? You know, how would you describe the state of your program today? I I, I would say that despite what's going on with the pandemic, the, our program is flourishing. Now I I get I, I must pick up at least 10 or 20 player friends on Twitter every week and kids putting their pro, their huddle profiles on and their highlight films. And it's, it, but the weird thing is, is it's more of out of state guys than in state guys. Yeah. I, I, I think after we won and when we knew the show was coming to us, it was, it was almost like a no brainer. Like, well, everybody's going to try to come play for us now. And, and the weird thing was it was kind of the opposite. A lot of the guys that we were recruiting really hard and heavy started saying they were going to go to other schools. I don't know if that was because they didn't want the cameras on them or they thought they were going to be competing for too much playing time. It, but the notoriety that the, that the show has brought our program, is, it's been really amazing. I, I mean, the only the only bad part is, is we got to wear masks everywhere we go, so nobody gets recognized unless you're Dior hanging out with short shorts in Hawaii. Right, right, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But it's just just the fact that everybody, all these kids, hard work, and the hard work that we put in as coaches was put in front of the nation. That made us really, really proud. Because in California, especially Northern California, Laney, Laney is one of the top-tier programs, and we've worked it into a top-tier program in the last few years. You know, uh, probably about 10 years before that, when C.J. Anderson was the running back for Laney, Laney was competing to be in the mid-level and was trying to work back up to the big boy level with San Mateo and San Francisco and all them. And that was with a future NFL running back. Yeah, and the the program, you know, they were they were consistently about a five and five program, and ever since Coach Bean took over the program, we've had winning seasons. I think almost every year but one, and our, the the notoriety that we built up in the state started to really grow. But now now that it's the show, it's it's amazing how just everybody all over the nation knows who we are now, and. Hopefully, we can get everything back on track so that, I don't want to say turn them away at the door, but where we can really start bringing in a lot of guys and keep up that high level of competition that we've been striving for. You mentioned Coach Bean there. Talk about him. You, you know, you've been working with him now, I think, for about nine years. Uh, talk about the impact that he's had on you and what he's done to you know, specifically to help turn that program around there at Laney. You know, Coach Bean's one of those kind of guys and is, that's never satisfied, which is the driving force of this program. I've worked with and for guys in the past that just don't have a strong sense of leadership, just been kind of like an aw shucks kind of guy when things, when things go wrong or hard decisions have to be made. And one of the things I really admire about Coach Bean is he's not afraid to make hard decisions and he's not afraid to challenge everybody around them to get better, to demand that the level of the program and everybody's effort continues to grow as we work together. It, you can't sit back and rest on what you did before with that man. And that's not always easy, but at the end of the day, I respect it and him tremendously. You know, although at the time, if you get ripped, it doesn't feel too good. Right. But, but you know, when, when we got to hoist that trophy up in the air in Sacramento and know that we had won that. And for me, that was the first playoff championship I had ever won as a coach. When, when I was a high school coach, we weren't good enough to make it to the playoffs. When I was a community college coach at Solano in the beginning at Laney, there were no playoffs. You just, you, you're based off your record and what the, the I, I, I call them the dead Jedi's, you know, just to get the, the guys that are in the room making all the decisions, they decide who plays who. And then everybody can argue, well, is this a, a championship, a state championship game, or, or is this a mythical national championship? Where when the, the playoff system came around, we, we got in, you know, we got in the first time and lost, and then we won it all. And that was the first time I had ever done anything that noteworthy as a coach. And it, it took 20-plus years to get there, and it was the sweetest feeling in the world. And I got to share that feeling with my family in the stands and, and everybody we played with. And that's in no small part to the leadership that Coach Beam has provided this program in pushing everybody to do their best. 
Give us some sort of behind-the-scenes commentary on some of those more you know, memorable moments from the 2019 season that uh, either didn't make the show or at least maybe didn't get enough attention, in your opinion. The, the biggest one that didn't make the show that really disappointed me was there was no mention of Ramon Sanders. And Ramon Sanders was a local player from a climate high school in Oakland, was committed to go to... San Mateo. They did a, there were some local coaches around there that did a really good job of getting to him before we did and convinced him to go over there. And some things happened in his life and he had to make some changes, so he came to us. And Ramon, one day we're at practice and we're we're already well into the summer. And I'm a I don't want to say a creature of habit, but when when somebody comes in new, I'm really skeptical because we don't run a simple defensive system. And, and that's one of the, the big pluses about what we do at Lane, you know, that I feel makes players competitive when they go to the next level. We're not, we're not running two coverages and three fronts. We're, we're running multiple coverages, multiple fronts, multiple teams. And when he came in, I, I just, I looked at Josh and I said, I don't know if he's going to be able to pick it up. And excuse me, two plays in, I'm like, okay, you're right. I'm wrong. This guy needs to probably start for us. <laughs> and and Ramon did a tremendous job. I, we would not have made the playoffs if it wasn't for the effort that he made in the Santa Rosa game the year that year of the state championship. We were down. We couldn't get it. We couldn't work any kind of pass rush. They did a great job of of scheming for what we do, and we put in a package that that featured him. And he had a couple key plays that really turned the game around that helped get, that kept our season alive. And we were practicing for one of the playoff games, and somebody ran into him, and he hurt his leg. He had been complaining about he's had, had a sore leg since high school, but we all kind of chalked it up to, hey, that's football. And he went down, and he wouldn't get up. And at first we thought, hey, you're quit playing around. Get up. we got practice to do. There's no time for this. And it turned out that he had bone cancer in his leg. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and his at that point, you know, it, it, the, the bone was so worked over by the cancer that it was kind of mush. Because he's saying, I think I broke my leg. And I'm no doctor, but if somebody breaks their femur practice, you know, you would think it would sound like a tree branch breaking off. And it, it was nothing. And we, we, we were like, oh, you're going to be fine. And he had cancer, and he fought it till the very end. But he ended up passing away during the next, during that season. And I, I just really wish the show would have done a feature on him. Yeah, you know, wow. Because the show, the show kind of left off like our season was over after game 10. We actually played in a bowl game. We didn't play very well in the bowl game, <laughs> but we got there. And... They did a great tribute to Ramon. Coach Beam wore his jersey. We had a moment of silence for him. His family was there. And he was just, he was such a tremendous kid and a player that I I just really, really wish that the show would have acknowledged him in some way. But, you know, it's not my job to be the editor. They filmed thousands of hours and it had to get whittled down to eight. But I, I just really wish they would have said something about Ramon in it. Um, the other thing was I, I had a player this year, Amir Mujahid, who a local player from Berkeley High School, 
was a third-year guy. He gray-shirted and just through sheer will and determination and, and working his butt off in the weight room, he ended up working himself into a full-ride scholarship to Washington State University. And in my mind, it was one of, you know, to me, that's what the whole show is about. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you, you up until that point, you know, like you said, my, my impression of Lab Chance U was, okay, I had a Division One scholarship. I, I either flunked out or I got arrested or, or did something to ruin my good time there. But now I'm going to go back to this community college and I either get right or I get out. Where with us, it's a lot of stories of, I, I, I was not, this was not the position I started out with. Mir started out as an outside linebacker. And then he came down to me, and we worked hard together every day. And he got bigger and stronger and faster and really honed in his technique. And now he gets a chance, you know, when the season starts up again to show it at the Pac-12. And I, I, I just knew in my mind, I said, that's got to be something that they're looking at. And the fact that they didn't, I mean, it, it, it's one of those oh well moments. It's not going to change the fact that he got a Division One scholarship, because to me, that's what it's all about. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I tell these guys, hey, as long as you can continue your education and get a degree and go play this game, I don't care what level it's at, you take it and, and you make it work for you. But those those two things really stick out in my mind in the end. Well, I'm so glad you shared those because, again, those are two really powerful storylines that, again, uh, you know, we're not the we're not in the, the you know TV business and, and not sure how all that works as far as you know, trying to edit that stuff down. But those are just two powerful storylines, which, again, I know are, are particularly close to you. And so uh, I'm so glad that you shared those. I'm just curious, you know, you, you mentioned this and how, how many hours they filmed and, and how long they were with you guys. How did having a TV crew, you know, following you around all season just affect the day-to-day operations of your football team? It, I, I got to say, I think I was really worried that it was going to make everybody just ham it up for the cameras all the time. And there, and granted, there was a little bit of that. But for the most part, I thought everybody kept their composure really, really well. I, I just know that I treated it like an administrator was watching me at practice. I may not yeah. say all the things. I'm not going to say all the things I normally say or do all the things I normally do because everybody knows that Football coaches, you know, we got some potty mouth. So, and and I don't I don't do it just to do it. But when I'm excited and I'm coaching, my language is not the best. And when you're you're sitting there dealing with a kid or coaching a drill and getting all fired up, and then you turn around and there's a camera in your face, it's it's a little weird. Yeah, yeah. But and our concern was we didn't know which was worse whether we were really aware that the cameras were on us or if we forgot that the cameras were on us. You know, because then, I mean, they're real moments, but they might not be real moments that you wanted to share with the entire nation. Right, right, and, right. <laughs> you know, and the, they, the, the crew, they did a great job. I, I can't say enough about how cool and professional those guys were. And they let us know from the beginning, hey, we're not here to make you look bad. We're here to catch moments, and you know, I, I think one of the hardest parts was wondering what made it, what didn't. When when I found out that Dior had gotten an advanced copy of 
the show because you know how much he was featured in it. The first thing I did was I called Dior up and said, "Hey, uh, I didn't do anything that's going to embarrass me or my family, right?" Uh, he's, he's like, no, nah, Coach Coughlin, you did everything good. Yeah, and you know, just because it's one of those things, you don't. After being around it for so long, you don't know what they, what we said, and what we didn't say, and what they thought or didn't catch. Right. So right. Yeah, it was just, it was those moments of, you know, my wife was just, hey, I can't wait to watch this show with you, and in the back of my mind is like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch this show with you. Yeah, 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 no <laughs> doubt. Well, do you feel like the show did an accurate job of depicting, you know, who you guys are as a coaching staff and as a program? I, I think so. I mean. I know that coming in that they had a mission to tell a narrative that was a story of guys, underdog guys that were trying to make it out and with the backdrop of Oakland behind it. I, I, I think that I wish they would have kind of acknowledged all of the coaches, you know, because we have some great coaches that got very little camera time. And once again, that wasn't our, you know, that, that's somebody else's decision who gets paid a lot of money to make that decision. But I think they accurately portrayed the day-to-day operations of what, what we were doing. And my other wish was that, and I totally get this, it was the John Coach Beam was the main character in this show, and he's an office coach. So I kind of just wish that the defense would have gotten a little bit more of the spotlight because we work really hard and and we treat our guys really good and a lot of work goes into the scheme and the implement the implementing of that scheme and getting our guys ready week to week. Well, Coach, you are speaking to some sympathetic ears with that statement because, hey, you're talking to guys who most of the time were overlooked. Uh, for their offensive counterparts, you know, uh, whether it just be with coverage in the newspaper or, uh, you know, locally, uh, offenses are always the ones that, that that side of the ball is getting the attention most of the time. And, and uh, uh, so if it's any consolation, I mean, I know this is, there's probably not going to be as many people check this episode out as they did who watched the show, but at least now you're getting your shot here in this small little, uh, you know, podcast here to kind of talk about your side of things. So you, again, you mentioned Coach Beam, and, and I don't want to get you in trouble here, but you know, give us some of your favorite Coach Beam stories from the years that you've coached with him. You know, the one that always pops into my mind is when I when I first got to Laney, and, and now a lot of the most of the staff at that time had played for Coach Beam when he was at Skyline High School in Oakland. You know, that was a top level program put numerous players into the NFL and Division One schools, and they they ruled the Bay Area for a lot of years and had a ton of success. And I'd be in these meetings as the rookie on the staff, and I'd see Coach Beam just going hard on people. And and part a little part of me was like, oh, God, that's not me. But the other part of me was like, well, I, I want to feel like part of the gang and, and get yelled at by Coach Beam, too. And then we were at... West Hills College, which is kind of out in the middle of nowhere between us and Los Angeles, and we were playing a game, and it was it, we were winning the game, but it was just one of the ugliest things I've ever been a part of. And we had a Tongan player on my line that was 
talking to the the Tongans on the other team in Tongan, and apparently he was not saying the nicest of things. <laughs> so things were get, <laughs> things were getting ugly real, real quick. We were getting fifteen yard penalties right and left, and making mistakes, but we're still winning the game. So it's like party is happy about that. But then my guy got another fifteen, and I got Coach Bean just screaming at me in my face, and ba- and he said. Basically, if I if one of my guys gets another penalty, then he said I'm taking him to Kincaid's for dinner. And Kincaid's is a restaurant in Oakland that is a little bit on the pricey side. And I'm just a working coach. And I remembered that Coach Beam loves iced tea. Whenever we go out, you know, we have we have a cocktail or a beer. And Coach Beam always has an iced tea. And at the moment, he's just screaming at me and. He's doing it in front of one of the refs. That's a, he's a usual ref that knows everybody. He said, hey, you're going to take me to Kincaid. Uh, and I had to look at him, and I didn't know what else to say. I said, but I'm going to fill you up on iced tea before we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the ref laughed. I laughed. I, I didn't wait around to see if Coach Bean was laughing because it was not the best look for all of us at the time. And when the game was over, Coach Bean was so pissed at everybody that he put him on the line and he was making them run gaffers after the game. And oh, wow. it, it, it's kind of funny because it was a foreshadowing to quarantine days. Because we were a four or five-hour drive from Oakland, we only had about three fans in the stands. And Coach Bean puts them on the line and starts running them. And next thing you know, we're, we're hearing complaints from the three fans in the stands. <laughs> like, hey, that's not fair. You know, it's kind of like the NFL stuff now where they had to, they have to cue out the audio because now you can hear everything that's yeah. going on on the field. Yeah, and I'm just looking, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And it 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 was one of those moments where it's like, "Well, I'm in the club now." Yeah, but but I'm in the club now, so I'm I'm getting hollered at with the rest of them. And one little part of me felt cool about that, and then another part said, "I'd, I'd like to go back to feeling like I wasn't in the club." <laughs> well, let's let's now transition and, and talk about your defense there at Laney and specifically your D front. And I know that in conversations leading up to this one, we talked about, uh, or you talked about how much uh, you like focusing on, uh, you know, teaching just your defense alignment to strike. So let, let's talk about that. And, you know, winning early downs is another big thing that I know you guys put a lot of emphasis on. So let's just talk about that. Walk us through that and how you're coaching that with your guys. You bet. Um, first thing, the, the two philosophies that drive our defense that is that I feel that have led to the majority of our success is you earn the right to rush the passer and you win the game on first down. So to me, I mean, everybody bites their nails when it's third and 10 and everybody gets to pin their ears back. To me, that's the fun time. You know, where first down is where we set the tone for the next few plays and field position and how the game's going to go and stopping the run has been my number one and number two priority as a defensive line coach and like I said when we get to rush the passer we still work pass rush drills a lot but I really feel that we win games on first down and we we get in we're a three four team we're we're in an even front I got three guys, and they're all. I got two guys shaded on tackles or head up on tackles, and one guy head up on the nose, and we're banging. You know, the the NFL term I always heard was knockback. 
I, 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 when I, I got to see some Rex Ryan stuff and we had already been running the bank. And then I was like, okay, they call it knockback. So I try to use both terms interchangeably to get to cue what I want out of our guys where we're, we're in a big voice. We're in a super wide, even stance. I wait 50, 50, maybe 60, 40. And we're really trying to just knock those whole line back and destroy blocking teams and make plays in the backfield. You know, our, our big philosophy on D line is lock, peak, and shed. Where we're and we're we're locking our guy out, peeking into our gap, and then setting off when you see color come into that gap. Put a hat on the ball carrier. Let's get it out and, and let's stop. And I really, I I enjoy coaching the run fundamental stuff probably a little bit more than the pass stuff, mm-hmm. just because. Like like we talked about, you know, some people make a living just out of all the fancy pass rush drills and all the moves and, and things like that. Where I'm, I'm a Howie Long guy. You got one move, and you got to counter off of that move, and then maybe you got a third move that you keep in your pocket for special occasions. You know, where I don't try to make it too complicated for my guys. Where I really, really work. We work. The first thing we do in pre-practice and our first innings every day is we get on the two-man sled and we strike it all the time. We start from the fit just because one thing I learned from being a shot put and discus coach in high school is I really like teaching everything from the finish on back. Yep. Yeah, and I get my guys in the fit all the time and we work on thumbs up, elbows down, mapped out you know because when i first started learning d-line it was always four four three principles put your mask in there bury your mask explode press off of that well it's like well we don't have that kind of time to do that anymore but you know if we do that the ball carrier is biased where now i and, and just for safety how the game's kind of changed about not leading with your hat anymore for anything for tackling for blocking for defensive line play Nowhere is talking about leading with the mask. And I, once I started teaching leading with the hands and the strike, I noticed the play of my defense climbing improved tremendously overnight. And just being able to get that separation that much faster and be able to locate where the ball carriers set off, it, it just it helped us get to the level where we're at now. Talk about how you're playing your defensive tackles. You said, you know, those guys are head up. Are they are they strictly are they two gap players or are they playing B or C gap just depending on the type of block they get? How are they talk about how they're playing? So hopefully nobody from our conference is listening to this, but although I want you to get all kinds of listens for your podcast, but we're it's two gap technique with one gap So we're still moving with the blocker. You know, I my my thing is, is I I don't even keep a hard first step anymore. You know, it used to always be run or pass. So you know, we were we were told hey, replace the down hand. You know, to get that first step upfield. Now, when when I started talking to some people that I really admire as coaches, you know, it was talking about weight room movement. Well, when you squat, your feet are on the ground. When you power clean, your feet are on the ground. When you launch off into a blocker. Your feet are on the ground, and I keep hips and hands, and then the feet come. So if the hips and hands are going to the movement, 
then the feet are automatically going to be moving in the direction of the block. Whereas, you know, I get guys from the high school and they're, they're all about taking that first step. Well, then their hands are down at their side. And I, I don't know how it is in your neck of the woods, but I, I tell my guys, if you get held, that's your fault. And a referee is very rarely going to call holding. No doubt. All. That's right. You know, because my, you know, my guys from the coach, he told me, coach, he told me, I'm like, they already know the answer. I'm like, well, whose fault is that? Yep. They put their eyes down and they, oh, it's fine. So, yeah. You know, it's like, I don't, want to, I don't even want to hear. And I, and I was the same way. I'd be a coach just screaming, hey, they're holding our guys. Well, that's, if they're holding us, that's my fault as a coach. Yep. Not getting guys ready to be able to get that kind of separation off and be able to go to the ball. And just re- realizing that the hands are the fastest thing that you have. That's the first point of contact with the blocker, and it's the fastest thing you have. Let's get them out there as quickly as possible. And the hips are going to power those hands, and the feet are going to push through the ground to power your hips. Now, after they after they get it moving, I want their feet moving the entire play. And don't get me wrong; I don't I don't teach them to just stand in one place. But that initial strike, I, I when I teach my stance now, I just want the crack of daylight under their heels. Right, you know where, where when I first started coaching, you know it's almost like your your run down stance looks almost exactly like a pass rush stance. Now, w- when we're pass rushing, I want them heavy on their hand. I want their heels off the ground. I want them feeling like they're in the track block and just getting off. But I mean, even everything to to what we cue is different. If we're in run mode, we're we're cueing the tip either the V of the neck or the tip of the shoulder if we're in a shape. And if we're doing pass, then I want them, I want their eyes, they're still looking at their man, but I want their eyes inside seeing that ball so they can get the, the fastest possible get off they can get. And when we're, when we're in that first down mode, I even tell my guys to back off the ball. You know, when we run, especially when we run pods, we get buried a lot. And the tensions are high. It's on the main stage. There's only three or four guys going at once. Everybody's screaming and hollering. You know, so they start to crowd the ball because they think that's going to give them an advantage. And I'm always behind them yelling at them to back up so that they have a little more room to uncoil and get their hands out in front of them so they can get that separation. When it comes to winning early downs, talk about some other things that you guys uh, are emphasizing when it comes to maybe things you're keying or just the other things that you talk about when it, you know, other important things that, that, that go into being successful on those early downs. I, I, I think a lot of it comes down to two snap reads, you know, looking at the splits of the offensive line, the depth of the different offensive lines, and the back set. You know, if we, if we get a two back set, then I start talking to my guys, hey, if, you know, look, look for down blocks, look for pullers you know, power kind of schemes and counter schemes. If we get one back, you know, it, it's more about, it, it, and granted there are teams running one back power now, but, you know, I want I, we see them, and this is all based off film study too. Okay, now you're probably going to see more zone out of this set. One, one of the things that has really been giving us fits lately has been zone schemes with the pin and pull, where yep. the guard will block, Bart will block out on our four technique and the tackle pulls around inside to go up to the linebacker. 
Well, now my B gap player just became a C gap player without making a move. You know, because it has an out blocked by the guard and the tackle looping inside. And we noticed after a lot of film study, it's like, okay, well, look, you'll see that tackle is, he's a couple extra inches off the ball. So now we got to be ready for that. You know, where before when I was a big 4-3 guy, if, if we got a low block inside, we were coming down the line looking to spill. Now we're kind of going back old school and taking things on with the inside shoulder. Because yeah. I'm in this 3 4 team, I'm all about having our guys facing the line of scrimmage and not turning their body. Yep. Yeah. But we're not as crashing straight kind of team anymore as we are just being fundamentally gapped down and not exchanging gaps on the fly so much. I mean, it's always the linebacker's job to make it right. Yeah. But it's a thing, you know, I'm not, I'm not my guys to. Inside, you know, we're squeezing down, staying square to the line of scrimmage instead of pulling inside and trying to take on, you know, take on guys. Well, yeah, coach, I, I love that because, you know, we are too. You know, when I first started coaching, you know, it's if you're getting a down block, man, we're, we're turning and we're humming inside, right? And just going and blowing up those pullers. And then you understand, well, I just sacrificed one for one. And you kind of think, you, you try to think like in an ideal world, you're going to be able to take out both pullers. But that's really was, you know, it's, it's pretty rare. But I think being able to stay square and keep yourself square to the line of scrimmage, squeeze down that space, and now to use, uh, you know, a Don Brown uh, term from Michigan, you know, now you, you, you start denting those pullers and punching their inside shoulder. You know, you're able to buy that guy back, you know, get some knockback on that guard uh, uh, and, and, and buy yourself back and, and pop back out and help uh, make the play. I'm right there with you on the, you know, yeah, linebackers are supposed to make us right. But I hate saying that because that just makes us, you know, as far as D linemen, just sound like a bunch of idiots. Like, don't worry. You can screw up because the guy behind you who's a lot smarter will, will make you right. He'll clean up your mess for you. And I think that kind of subconsciously teaches our kids to not pay attention to what they, what it is they're doing. So I'm with you on that. My job is here just because our responsibilities are more in stone. It's like, if you got B-gap, you got B-gap. And if that linebacker has C or backside A, that's his gap. And that way, if we get a breakdown and something happens, we know exactly what we have to fix instead of guys ducking inside. I'm, I mean, if you have athletes, you're going to make plays no matter what. But I, in the beginning, when I first started doing D-line, I really subscribed to like the Rod Marinelli style of Rushman philosophy. It's just like, just go in there and wreck shop. And, we'll, and as long as you're penetrating and, and going in there, and that's cool if you've got a bunch of, Six four, two hundred and forty pound feature guys. Yeah. You know, where where the thing about the three four and staying square is I can I can do this with anybody, but it especially works when I have great athletes. Yeah. And and we make and by doing our job, we don't make the necessarily make the linebackers the star, but I tell my guys just, hey, you know what? We're we're not we're not just trading ourselves on a blocker, but you're gonna take on that blocker and you're gonna defeat him. And you're going to stay in your gap. And if something comes in your gap, you better get it. And that way, if it goes somewhere else, then the linebackers can go. I, I always tell my guys, you've got your gap, and you're the half-man helper in the next gap over. Yeah. And the other thing that I used to, I, I, I've evolved this over the years is, you know, at first it was, okay, we'll trade one for one, like you said. It, you know, if we're spilling on somebody, 
that's a one for one. And, and, and like double team, to me, when guys turn on double team, if I turn my back to the drive block, then it's like okay, I've taken I've taken away two guys, but I've also taken myself out of the play. Yep. And and I have balls myself to saying, hey, I won't trade one for one, but I will trade you for two guys. Now I'm not even willing to do that. I'm I'm telling my guys, you can play that like when we're playing down block, we're still knocking back the guy in front of us, but we're dipping the shoulder to the drive block. You know, knock the post guy back, dip your shoulder to the drive blocker, and you better shut off into your gap and go make a play. Yeah. And we've helped guys get scholarship at the nose position just by having their ability to play a double team and get out the other side and still put a hat on the ball. Because, I mean, I, I just, I never want to take a guy out of a play. I don't care if he's taking out three blockers. I still, I want him to take everybody, take on your guy, play the pressure, and then get off and go make a play on the ball. No doubt. I mean, I think it all goes into the mentality that we're instilling yeah. in our kids. Uh, I, I think it kind of goes, you know, the old school way of of of, of teaching uh, splitting double teams was, you know, well, if all else fails, just make a pile. And I I never liked doing that, and have never taught that, just because what are kids going to start doing? Well, they're just going to start flopping on the ground and, and trying to pull guys on top of them. And uh, but I think if you're kind of like what you're talking about, if you're teaching them, hey, you can split this and go and make a play. In fact, that's the expectation then they're going to find a way to do that, and they're going to get their shoulder down. They're going to come off and knock the post guy back, get their shoulder down and split that thing and go make a play. And then, like you said, when you see something like that, as far as a, if you're watching a high school kid do that, that kid's going to jump off the film. Oh, heck yeah. I, it, and just teaching, teaching our guys to be relentless. I, I mean, I, I see, and granted, they're, these guys are a lot smarter than me, and they're making a lot more money for doing this job. But when I when I watch pro film of watching a guy, okay, you get you get a double team of guys, okay, go where you almost see guys go down and take a knee and then rip out of that. I, I just I, I don't want to give up any kind of position of power. Yeah, you know, I I always tell my guys it, it's like a double team is like getting in a fight with two dudes. You can't fight two dudes at once. Right. All I can do is beat the crap out of the guy in front of me, and then. Get, and then duck my body part away from his buddy so that I can escape through and go do what I got to do. So when you're breaking, uh, when you're, when you are uh, evaluating high school defensive linemen, maybe guys send you their, 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 their tape or whatever, or you're watching on your own, you know, what are some things that you look for when looking at potential recruits? And besides the obvious stuff, you know, height and weight and speed and all that, but just some things that you're looking for on that film. Uh, the, the first thing I try to find is, how, to, how well the guy uses his hand. And I know that at the high school level that you're going to get everything from super well coached to not coached at all. And, you know, depending on the programs that you're dealing with. If I see a guy using his hands in high school, I want I, I get really excited. The other thing I see is, like, I, I'm not worried about flat-out 40 speed, but I, if he should look faster than the guys around him. If he, you know, just ball get off and awareness of what's going on in the field. And last but not least is if I see a guy who just has relentless pursuit, those are the kind of guys I want. I want the guy that's 20 yards away from the play, but he is running his butt off to get there 
to go try to put a hat on the ball and help make something happen. So it's interesting because you play that that role, right, where you're recruiting guys, and then you're turning right around and you're making tape of your own guys to send off to D1 schools or, you know, whatever, uh, D2 schools maybe. So how do you instill those same things, you know, playing with your hands, uh, playing fast and sh- having relentless effort uh, in pursuit of the ball? How do you coach those same skills in your guys? I, I, we emphasize it every day, every opportunity we can. I mean, I, in pre, I get some time during pre-practice. We go right over to the sled and we start hitting it. And then we add a finish to the drill where I'm not just, before, I'd be happy to just hit the sled and I blow the whistle and then, or say done, and then you go to the back of the line. Now we've progressed it to you're you're hitting the sled and now you've got a key and then when that key moves, you're going to go either wrap the roll tackle on an agility bag or form up a guy. But we're always putting a finish to the drill. That way, our guys know it's like, hey, you're not done until this play, until the whistle blows. For the ball carriers, you're you're helping put the ball carrier down on the ground. And it, the first couple of years, it was kind of a tough sell, just because the philosophy of the program was more of a rushman philosophy. You know, just dip and rip, don't be a block magnet, and get in the backfield and go make a play. Yeah, I, I still I still feel there are times to do that, but that's a mode that we would tag on to an existing play to let them know it's like okay. We're, we're not we're not following you don't have to live by the rules on this one just get in and make something happen and there are even times during a play where I might give a signal to one of my guys to let them know it's like all right I'm, I'm not looking to, for you to put your hands on somebody I'm looking for you to flip a blocker and get in the backfield and blow something up because we, we need we need a home run play right now and my brother was a baseball guy. And there are baseball guys on the staff. I played baseball, but I'm not a baseball guy. I, I, but I always tell them, I don't want a bunch of home runs because if, if you're just closing your eyes and swinging for the fence, a couple times you're going to get it, and, but most of the time you're not. I'd rather see doubles and triples, and I want you playing with your hands so that you can control what's going on around you. Because I, I tell them, it's almost to the point where the same reason why I don't keep many rip moves anymore because if you throw a rip against a 330-pound offensive lineman, odds are he's just going to clamp down on you and hold hold you until the play is over, and then you're going to be mad, and the ref's going to look at you like it's your fault. Whereas if we if we're using our hands more and we get that separation, now you can violently shed off up that blocker and throw an arm over, knock hands away, and go put a hat on the ball. And once our guys how well it works in practice and how well it works against other teams, I mean, they buy into a big time. Now, it's easier because the last, we've had at least one to two guys go Division One out of our position group the last four years. So, you know, I, I just say, hey, it works for that guy. It can work for you. Yeah. And they, and they see enough film of it now from our past games to where it's it, Coach Ramos has a has a whole or a whole column on huddle, you know, for all the things that he puts down that would basically be like clinic film. And I started doing that in this off season with mine, where now I can show people 
This is how we play this breach. This is how we play this double team. This is how we play against this puller. And they can see it being successful over and over again where it motivates them to do it themselves. And the other fact is we get all these four-year school guys coming around and telling the kids, hey, we like how you use your hands. And they hear that one time from a four-year guy. They come running back to me and they go, coach, you're right. And I look at them, I go, I know. That's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, that's always, uh, it, it's such a, it can be a frustrating thing because uh, if, if these guys can just understand how much easier life is for them when they use their hands and, and when, that, when that light does click, uh, then it is a cool thing because, um, you know, they, they just sort of take off and then they start telling the younger guys, you know, and getting on them. And now you're like, hey, man, you know, I can, I can tell a younger guy, I'm like, hey, don't, don't ask me. Go ask him. Like, talk to him. Tell him, see, ask him if I'm lying to you. And, uh, but it's just sometimes hard to get them to that point because, you know, they want to look in the backfield. They want to just sort of run around and, and don't understand the process. Yeah, I, the, the good, the best part is, is like from the year before we won the championship, we have a, we have a guy, Jordan Whitley, who's at Oregon State right now. And Jordan was a 250-pound running back, if you could believe that. Wow. And he was a legit 250-pound running back, and he blew his knee out. He gained a lot of weight, was kind of sitting around with his knee brace on, lost, and Coach Rick and I started working on him night and day. Hey, you need to come play D-line. And the first 50 times we said that, people got us to go, Coaches, you're stupid. And then we finally convinced him and next thing you know, he's an All-American defensive lineman at Laney and getting a, a full-ride scholarship for Oregon State. And he comes back, and he's a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. And we'll, he'll be sitting here with our, with our group, and I'll say, well, what kind of things are you guys working on at Oregon State? He's like, Coach, we're doing the same things you're doing right now. We're doing the same thing. Now, I know every coach has a little different wrinkle on it, and I, I would imagine that they're doing a few things that I haven't learned how to do yet at the Division One level. But just for our kids to hear that from the players that came back to say, hey, these are, we're doing these same kinds of drills. We're doing these same kinds of techniques. I mean, I, I can take credit for inventing maybe one or two things, but everything else has been me learning from people that I really admire and, and just taking their cues and their drills and making them my own and putting my own little special spin on things to make it work for my guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. We all are, are, are great thieves. And, and that's, you know, the point of this podcast uh, and, and, you know, a, a large part anyway is, is to be able to collaborate and, and create a place where guys can steal from each other. So uh, if you're going to be sending film high school guys to coach, the Coach Coughlin at Laney College, you better be uh, better be good at playing with your hands, and you better run to the football. All right, well, Coach Coughlin, great stuff today. We're going to close out with our rapid-fire segment here where I'm going to give you uh, some sets of words here, and you're going to tell me your preference. You, you, uh, you think you can handle that? All right, I'll try not to yell anything bad out. Okay, all right, well, here we go. Well, this one, we already talked about it, uh, so I know your answer. This is the one that's usually the first out of the box anyway, but I'll ask it anyway. Head up or shade nose? Head up all day. Okay, so now this is what I always ask when people say head up. Are, do you prefer to lag your nose or is he coming off and smashing? 
Okay, good. See, I, I like that. I'm not a fan of the lag. Okay, uh, for you on game day, where are you more comfortable, sideline or press box? I was banished to the press box a couple times in life, and granted, I love the snacks up there, <laughs> but there's nothing, there's nothing better than being on the side. That's right. That's right. Okay, for y'all, and I don't know how this, no, I, don't, I don't know how this works over there with y'all. Uh, you know, day games versus night games, but. Uh, for you, which do you prefer, day game or night game? You know, as an ex-high school guy, it was always night, but I, I got to say, Saturdays at 1 o'clock are pretty cool. Okay, all right. Do y'all play Thursday games out there, or is it all Saturday? No, our home, actually, our home games at Laney are on Friday night. Okay, Saturday. okay, nice, nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay, speaking of game day for you, game day, are you superstitious or no? Everything's got to go on left to right. Really? The, really? The, the pant legs, the, the socks, the shoes, everything left to right. Other than that, I, I try not to go too much in the superstition <laughs> land, but I got that one. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Uh, we talked about some of your hobbies there before this conversation. And, and so I know you um, are a, a guy who likes to get in the, uh, the weight room and throw some weight around. And you also like to race go-karts with your son. So... Uh, if you have some time off, some spare time, what are you more likely to do? Go get a lift in or go race go-kart? Uh, I'm going to be selfish and say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go sneak that lift in, and then we're going to have fun. Okay. All right. Good deal. I like it. All right. What is harder, teaching high school PE or coaching JUCO football? High school PE all day <laughs> long. Now, you got any kids walk around your PE class that you're like, hey, uh, Run a you know run a fade route or something real quick or let me see your three point stance. Any any suspects walking around your PE class? Oh, there's there's always a couple. It's just the one the ones I always get my eyes on usually end up getting a four year collie. Yeah, right out of high school. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're starting to see football come back in many parts of the country, and, and you know with with college football by and large, you know being close to all the way back, it looks like that's where the way we're headed. NFL started a couple weeks ago. What are you more excited about being back, NFL or college football? You know what? I got to say NFL because college is leaving some of them behind. Okay. Well, what's your NFL team over there? Uh, wouldn't make me popular in my backyard, but I'm a Seahawks fan. Really? Okay, yeah. You better uh, – you got to be careful there because I'm sure there's plenty of Niners fans who uh, have something to say about that. So I, 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 <laughs> I've been nice. Coach. Coach Ramos is a diehard Niners fan. Oh, okay. I poked, yeah. I haven't poked too hard about Bosa and Jimmy G. Yet. Yeah, yeah, that was rough this past weekend. They, uh, you know, obviously got the win over the Jets, but it came at a price. And the Seahawks are playing, you know, pretty well right now. Russell Wilson and those guys. Uh, funny story, I guess kind of funny story. I think I've actually shared it on this podcast before. But um, when I was coaching in Mississippi, I was um, – uh, DK Metcalf was a freshman um, – and it was my last year at this school, and I was I was calling the defense for the freshman team. And we're playing uh, DK Metcalf's team. It was the same in the same town, two high schools in the same town, kind of a rivalry. And uh, he absolutely torched us. I mean, it was one of those games where like I, I went in there and 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 really questioned my career choice because uh, he just made us look stupid. And uh, he didn't look anything like he does now. He's just a tall, lanky kid, but it was obvious that he was. Uh, you know, a level above, two or three levels above everybody else on the field that day. So uh, that's my DK Metcalf story. But glad to see that he's doing so well up in Seattle. Okay, coaching style. 
Would you say you're more good cop or bad cop? Uh, when I was a young, when I was a young coach, I was, I was angry coach. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not nice guy now, but I try to stay a little more even keel. I got and you. Just, and just, you know, instead, if it's effort, I'm screaming. Yeah. If it's technique, I'm teaching. I got you. I got you. That's a good way to be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, writing utensil of choice uh, or preference, pen or pencil? Fine tip, Sharpie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Our, our DC uses that on game day. I can. I can roll with that. I'm definitely a pen person. I don't like writing in pencil. The lead breaks and it's too light. And I'm definitely a pen person for sure. So, but I can get down with a fine tip sharpie. Now, where yeah. did you pick that up? Is that something you've always you've always carried with you, or what? I, you know, it, it was my high school coach, Coach Tail. It carried over, and when I went to my first football clinic, I, I came armed with some fine tip sharpies and some file folders to take my notes, and I've been in it ever since okay all right all right so here's the situation so i'm going to put a scenario on on here for you and you just you just tell me what what you would pick okay so you guys aren't playing football this fall there at laney so you have a chance to go and be a mercenary coach for this fall only and i know we've already started you know the season in some places that doesn't matter uh if you could just go move up and go coach anywhere in the nation for the fall where would you go and why If I if I could go anywhere and do it, I'd love to go to Alabama and just learn from the best. Okay, all right. Well, you know it's it's good that you're uh, okay with being yelled at because I'm pretty sure you would, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to last long without catching the wrath of Saban there while you were there. But you probably be. I'm, I'm sure with being under Coach Beam, you could handle it. I'm, I'm sure my my skin would get thicker <laughs> by the day. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Well, Coach, thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with us tonight. Great stuff. I uh, really enjoyed uh, what you had to say. So thank you so much, and good luck to you guys, uh, whether it's the spring or wherever, whenever you get to play next. We'll be watching and keeping up with you for sure. Well, right on. I appreciate you having me out. Great stuff from Coach Coughlin today. Really enjoyed getting his perspective on the show and, and love the storylines that he shared that were left out of the episodes. It's a shame that those didn't get in the the final cut of the show. I also love what he had to say about getting knocked back. And, and, you know, I really liked what he said about how he has a column in his film breakdown to tag plays where, you know, they're, where, they're, where they're using their drills in game so that they can, you know, can compile those and use them as a teaching tape or even for clinics. I thought that was a great idea from Coach as well. Uh, if you want to give Coach Coughlin a follow on Twitter, you should. You can find him on Twitter at Coach Coughlin. That's C-O-U-G-H-L-A-N. Give him a follow and let him know you heard him here on KYPD. Now, uh, before we go today, I'm excited about our series of episodes that we will roll out later this fall, uh, early in this, this, this winter, uh, where we talk with coaches about struggles that they've overcome during their career and how that's affected them and how they've managed to turn those trials into positives. And so really looking forward to that. And we do have some slots open for coaches to come on and tell their story. So if you're a coach who, uh, you know, for example, uh, who's been fired, or maybe you're a coach who's had a season interrupted by, um, I don't know, an international pandemic, uh, or even a natural disaster like, uh, you know, maybe a hurricane for you guys in South Louisiana or, or even down in Southeast Texas. You know, I know we've had a lot of coaches uh, in, in the state of Texas deal with that. Uh, maybe you dealt with a death on your team or something within your family. Uh, just just anything along those lines, and you feel comfortable sharing that story with our audience here, then please contact us 
uh, either through direct message on Twitter and we're uh, we can be found at KYPD Podcast or get in touch with us via email. And our email address is uh, KYPDpodcast at gmail.com. Anyways, it's going to be a great series of episodes and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Okay, our quote of the day goes like this Attitude is everything. And that's a wrap for episode 79 here of KYPD. Be sure to catch back up with us next week when we talk to a D2, D-line coach about stopping the run and a whole lot more. So subscribe now. And if you're liking what you're hearing, give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. Until next time, y'all have a great week. Bring the energy with you wherever you are because, as y'all know, if you're juiceless, you're useless, baby. And Coach Coughlin, tell them what else they better do. Keep your pads down, damn it.